On May 13, 2015, Savas Savopoulos, his wife Amy, their 10-year-old son Philip, and their housekeeper Vera Figueroa were held for 19 hours in their home in Washington, D.C. DNA found on pizza crust that was left inside the home led police to arrest one man, Darren Went. He's pled not guilty to all charges against him. He's currently in jail, and his trial is set for September 2018. Remember in episode six, I told you that since this podcast series had started, we had received new information and new leads. Some of those we were able to verify fairly quickly, and we reported them to you in that episode titled Trial Preview. But other tips made stronger allegations that we needed more time to investigate. Also, as a side note, you'll notice two name pronunciation changes. I was informed by a family friend and a family member that it's not Savopolis, that it's actually pronounced Savopolis, and that the S at the end of Savas's name is actually silent. It's Sava. So you'll notice those two changes moving forward. Now back to that new information and those new tips. One of those leads started with an email that I had received a couple of months ago. And that email was from a Google.com address. And here's what it read. Katerina Savopoulos has a restraining order against Philip Savopoulos. And that was it. Katerina, or Kat as she goes by online, is the daughter of Sava and Amy. And Philip is her grandfather. After doing our research, it is true. Kat filed that first restraining order against her grandfather in August of 2017. By September of 2017, Kat had been granted a one-year restraining order against her grandfather. We reached out to Kat and Kat's attorney for a comment. Both declined. We also reached out to Philip Savopoulos and his attorney, who also both declined to comment on this story. So we wanted to get our own expert, an attorney who could interpret the CPO, which stands for Civil Protective Order or Restraining Order. We spoke with Bernie Grimm. You probably remember Grimm from episode six. He is one of the top criminal defense attorneys in D.C. He has red hair. He always wears a suit jacket. And he also wears a big Rolex watch with a blue face. We met him in his office in downtown D.C. to discuss the CPO. This case has more twists than a package of licorice, so it's strange. So for your viewers out there, CPO, for those that may not know, is a civil protection order. So usually that would arise between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. They get in a fight and the boyfriend files something. A girlfriend says, stay away, you're texting me, you're harassing me. This case, though, is outside the norm because that, as we spoke, that box other is checked, which suggests, and it was pretty plain from the cover of the document, that there were allegations that the grandfather was sexually abusing the granddaughter. Philip Savopoulos, to his, sexually abusing his granddaughter, Katerina Savopoulos, and she is the one that filed the CPO. Katerina files the CPO. Now, normally a CPO can take all sorts of forms. It can be a civil protection order. It can be a temporary restraining order. It can have all sorts of labels. It can get very confusing. But essentially, what you want and what you're saying to the judge is, I want that person to stay the hell away from me. No text, no contact, no carrier pigeon, nothing, not a single thing. So what the judge did is she granted it for a year, which okay. is very unusual. That is a very long time to order someone to stay away from another human being and stay away from where they live, places that they might go. Her college. She's away at college. And, so yeah, yeah. And this is someone who's never been convicted of a crime. So 
that is really an extreme response to her claim. But what's curious about it, he didn't want all these facts coming out. So he admitted that it should not come out, but did not admit that these allegations occurred, but admitted that there should be a CPO, but it should be continued to another date. So he didn't want the facts coming out because she's entitled to a hearing to get up there and testify that on this date, he this sexually assaulted me, and he's done it repeatedly. And I'm not saying this happened. For all I know, the, the man is completely innocent. On the other hand, she never told the police not word one about it. Okay, so, yeah, talk to me about that. It doesn't seem that there was ever a police report filed. Right. Okay, so why would someone not file a police report? When you're the victim of sexual abuse, I can't talk from the perspective of a, uh, a woman but there's all sorts of reasons. There's embarrassment. This gentleman, Philip, has a lot of juice, a lot of weight, a lot of money. He could make your life very ugly. Um, you don't want to file a police report for that reason. And in the District of Columbia, once you make an allegation of a sexual assault, it's out of your hands. They are going to go forward with it, whether you regardless. want to, regardless whether you want to do it anymore or not. So you can never put the brakes on it. It's going to go from the sex squad the grand jury and then the grand jury sees if there's enough information to to indict him so the saying is you know if you strike the king you need to kill the king and this guy could hire a law firm not a lawyer so um and katarina still in college does she want this headache coming back and forth to dc right um so she probably heard the advice the lawyer get she received from the lawyer was, listen, I just want to keep this guy away from me. Assuming, let's assume that it's true. I go to college up in the Northeast and I don't want him up there ever texting, emailing, calling. I don't want any intermediaries of his trying to contact me. Bernie told us that one year was unusual for a restraining order. But when I spoke with reporter Marina Morocco and another investigator who is also a source for us, they said that it's pretty standard in D.C., also, in the restraining order, Phil Savopoulos agrees to one-year CPO, but he doesn't admit to guilt. And I wanted to know more about that. That's assuming it's true. But the judge found enough that it's true, not to mention he consented to the CPO. How is that different than admitting guilt? You're consenting that it should be put off for another day. You're not consenting that it happened. But if it's me, if a woman made an allegation against me that I was sexually assaulting them, for God's sakes, I'd say, no, I want to hear it right now. This is garbage. But what happens after the one year? Will there be a hearing? It's for one year. What happens over this year? Obviously, Philip, you know, obviously Kat's grandfather can't have contact with her. But over this year, did they think about having a hearing? When the year comes up, can it be renewed? Or do they have to have a, a hearing? Excellent question. During the one year... The judge wants to make sure that he's not texting or contacting her and that there's no blips on the radar screen. If he's not, then they come back in the year. His lawyer can say, okay, judge, this thing should expire. It's over. He hasn't had any, any contact with her, and she can seek to renew it. If she seeks to renew it, any judge that's sane would say, okay, we're not going to regulate this guy's ability to move about the country without a hearing, so we're going to have to have a hearing. Uh, wow. At that point, she will have to get up there and lay out in graphic detail what he did, allegedly did. And for all I know, maybe he did nothing. Um, because whenever you have death here, you have rage, you have passion, you have money, you have 
all the trappings of people wanting and being motivated to lie about stuff. Bernie felt there was one more thing that was unusual about the CPO. Yes, it's under seal. I mean, God almighty, I mean, you showed me the order which says, we don't want the media to have access to it. Well, Christ almighty, the, the courthouse, they don't want the media to have access to anything because they don't want, judges don't want to see articles in the metro section that someone got out that shouldn't have got out and killed somebody. They don't like the press at all. But unfortunately, there's a Bill of Rights and they should be following it. Uh, most of the times they do. But you can't issue a protective order saying this is under seal because the media is going to have interest in it. Even though this is a high-profile case, I mean, because when yeah. I first read that before you and I talked, I figured, well, you know, these murders, the murders of Kat's parents, it was very high-profile, still hasn't gone to trial. You don't think that that's enough of a reason? No, of course not. I mean... You know, the Kennedy assassination, what if they, what if the government filed a motion saying, this is under seal, we're not going to answer any questions about the assassination? That would be ludicrous, of course. Marina Morocco, who worked this case extensively in 2015 and who was featured on this podcast on episode one, also picked up a new lead. Marina spoke to a source close to the case who revealed that a grand jury is still open. That struck me as unusual. Darren Went has already been indicted on murder charges. So why would a grand jury still be open? We spoke with Marina Morocco more extensively about this. And then you have a source close to this story who essentially tells you that there is a grand jury still open. Right. But that could mean a plethora of things. It doesn't really mean anything in the context right. of this all. So it's kind of like playing this game as if they feel that there's more to it, but they don't exactly have the evidence to tag someone on it. So they're keeping it open. But they have continued to interview people, and we know at this point, because the CPO is against Phil Salopoulos, that they've interviewed and spoken to him many times, but we're being told, don't glean anything from that information. That doesn't mean we're looking at him as a suspect. He's just been interviewed multiple times because of how close he is to Phil and Amy. And according to those sources, Phil has been cooperating with police in this investigation. The entire time we're being told that he has cooperated with the investigation. And that could mean a lot of things, right? Because that could mean they questioned him a lot at the start and haven't questioned him in a year. They could still be, you know what I mean, right? You can interpret that many ways, Absolutely. Right? Like, he cooperated at the start. Maybe now they're not talking to him, so we don't know. And let's make this point very clear. Fox 5 found out, you found out about this CPO. Yeah. A lot of people close to the investigation had no idea this existed until we brought it to their attention. That's a big question mark. So are they gonna go back and look at Phil again? Are they gonna go back and re-question some of those people? Potentially, this is why the grand jury is still open because they have so many loose ends. We also wanted to get Bernie Grimm's take on a grand jury. Why would it still be open? So talk to us as to why, cause this blew my mind. I mean, Darren went, has already been indicted Yeah, many, many charges is awaiting trial. So wouldn't that grand jury be closed? Yeah, procedurally, you get arrested, you go to court, you have a preliminary hearing, and then the case is bound over to see if the grand jury is going to indict you. Then once you get indicted, you set a trial date. Then the grand jury expires. It's over. This grand jury is still open, which is bizarre. It seems to be the norm in this case almost. Bizarre. But that means that a prosecutor, once the grand jury expires, the prosecutor no longer has subpoena power. They can't get records. They can't get things that you can't get, they can get by subpoena power. So what they'll do is take a subpoena, give it to the foreperson of the grand jury and say, we need this, sign it, 
And then let's say, for example, that Kat went to the hospital because she was sexually assaulted. You, you or I could never, ever get those records unless we got a release from, from the young lady, from Kat, Katarina. She's not going to give us that. They could go over top of that, and through the grand jury, they could get those records. Um, so that's why you keep the grand jury open, because the grand jury has enormous, enormous amounts of power across the country. Just it's the jurisdiction transgresses states uh, from here to California and back. What about the possibility that someone else is involved in these murders? We asked Grimm about that. Okay, so aside from incredible power, could it also be that they have a grand jury open because they are looking to indict somebody else in this case? Absolutely. That would be the natural response. But you don't see, I don't know, I get a feeling from you, you don't seem like that's the case. You think that they're keeping it open? I, I, think, I, I think they're keeping it open just to leverage information and get as much information as possible. But like, look, look what you turned over with this. With this, with the will, with, not, with the will, we'll get to, and then the civil protection order. I mean, there's a lot of information. For example, the government may want the grand jury to issue a subpoena to the court reporter's office to get a transcript of what you can't get, because they're probably going to want to know: Does this have anything to do with the murder? It could or it couldn't, but it's sort of coincidental that it just comes up now. More than coincidental sort of troubling. So there's a small chance that grand jury could be open because they are looking at someone else. Let's say that scenario was the case. I mean, we're getting close to the, getting closer to the trial of Darren White, right, which is September. September 2018. So would there be any hurry to close that jury grand jury before Darren Wentz trial or are those entirely separate? Separate. Separate animals. I mean, if Wentz was going to give up somebody, he would have done it by now. This is not... Given the complexity of the invasion, it's not a one-man job. I mean, there's too many people being tied up, and there's too many people. You, one guy with a gun isn't going to be able to keep control of this whole situation. So um, I don't know if he is the, the puppet. He was told to go in there and, and do certain things, and it just fell apart. But for the amount of money, right. this, wasn't, this wasn't worth it. Somebody expected a, a payday, a retirement payday. Bernie also reiterated that a grand jury has enormous power and locks people into their testimony. Yeah, I mean, they have, they have, they have enormous power. It gives them the ability to continue to call in witnesses and not just interview them, but when, they, when they're brought into the grand jury, they're locked in. So once you testify in front of a grand jury, essentially that can be used against you, right? Like if you, then if, when this trial happens, I'm on the stand and I mess something up or I say a different date, they're going to come back to my grand jury testimony and go, well, wait a minute, you didn't... Didn't you a year ago say this, Ms. Frazier? So at any rate, yes. In the grand jury, unlike a police officer just, you know, sort of typing down your interview, this is in a room with 23 grand jurors. If you have a lawyer, the lawyer's not allowed in. It's just you and the prosecutor. You are there alone, naked, without any help whatsoever. You can't uh, you could assert the fifth, but usually what they do is they'll give you a, what's called an immunity letter saying nothing can be used against you. So they can call in any witness that knows anything about this. They'll call in, for example, let's say they want to make sure nobody on the block knows anything. They could canvas, they could subpoena everyone that lives on that block where this happened right. to testify. Then, as you say, if that person shows up, then, then the prosecutor is going to say, well, listen, last year you said... 
X, Y, and Z. So a lot of times a grand jury is used just to neutralize and to gut the defense, to prevent the defense from putting witnesses on. So they just want to get people on the stand to, to just cut their legs out from underneath them. Lastly, at the start of this podcast, I had heard that Saba and Amy did not have wills, which seemed unusual considering how much money and how many assets they appeared to have. Well, that turned out to be wrong. Sava and Amy did have wills, which were filed in D.C. probate and are now public. We obtained copies of the wills to hopefully shed more light on the family dynamics. We spoke with an estate planning and probate attorney, Carrie Castellini, to look at Amy and Sava's wills. Carrie is a partner at Price Benowitz Law Firm in downtown D.C. She's very attractive. She has long, dark hair that holds a perfect beach wave, and she wears glasses. She has such a youthful appearance, you think, this is a woman who couldn't possibly be old enough to be an attorney. But of course, she is. Carrie tells us that these wills are pretty standard. So you've been able to look these over. Can you tell us what's in these that might be of any significance or if they're standard? So this is a really common style of planning and they both have what's called pour over wills. And their wills essentially pour any assets that were in probate into the revocable living trusts and their revocable living trusts become the vehicle for distribution. Um, so all of the terms of how their assets are going to be distributed are held in further trusts for their children, charities, whoever the case may be, that information is housed in the revocable living trust. Okay, and is a trust public? No. And often a reason, um, one of the motivating factors to create a trust is specifically so that it's not public. I have more questions for Carrie. Like, who is the executor of Amy and Saba's wills? So then there's, unless the law firm that filed it or a family member gave us a copy of it, it, it's probably very hard to acquire. Correct. Okay, got it. So both Amy and Saba, their wills are pouring everything into this trust. But in their wills, there's an executor, correct? Yes. Okay, so in both Amy and Saba's wills, who is the executor of their will? For both documents, um, both name Philip Savopoulos as the, what is the executor, but DC calls personal representative. And what does the executor or personal representative do? So the personal representative is a fiduciary for any of the probate assets. Um, and their main duties are marshalling all of the assets that are in probate, evaluating and paying any legally enforceable debts, making sure that all income and estate tax returns are filed, and then making distribution pursuant to the terms of the will. And here, making distribution would mean distributing the assets of the estate to the trustees of the trust who will manage it further. Carrie tells me from the wills that Amy and Saba have two trustees, and those trustees don't appear to be family members. And Amy and Saba also have assets that went to probate which essentially means that they didn't designate those items to the trust. There was no beneficiary. Probate is the court-supervised process of authenticating a last will and testament if the deceased made one. It includes locating and determining the value of the descendant's assets, paying their bills and taxes, then distributing the remainder of the state to their rightful heirs or beneficiaries. Items that go through probate can be anything. Cars, a life insurance policy with no beneficiary, Carrie goes on to elaborate. So for example, so Sava had how much that went through probate? So according to what's been filed for the verification and certificate of notice, Sava's had 1.9 million okay. um, that were subject to probate. And Amy had 32,000 that, that was subject to probate. And, and again, this is reported by the personal representative to the court. Okay. 
And the personal representative is, is who, like in a case like this? It is generally the person named in the will, and here both wills name Philip as the personal representative. Anything else to you stick out about either one of their wills, or is this kind of a little bit of a dead end because you really need the trust to know who's getting what and who's controlling what? I mean, nothing on the face of the document stands out to me as something that's out of the ordinary. The style of planning is very common in this area for many couples and is used for a variety of reasons. So there's nothing just sort of in perusing the documents or the docket that stands out to me as out of the out of the normal, not being familiar with the actual trust or the assets or anything like that. But on the face of the documents, I don't does, I don't see anything that waves a red flag. Again, we're left with more leads to chase down. Thank you for listening to The Mansion Murders, a Fox 5 true crime podcast. Since we are getting new information, we're going to keep this podcast going. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be up to date when we release new episodes and new information. Also, when you're on iTunes subscribing, hit five stars, leave us a review, and tell us what you like about the podcast. A big thanks on this episode to Bernie Grimm for sitting down with us again, for Carrie Castellini, Judith Ayers, researcher, Ronnie McRae, who's the shooter and the editor on the videos that you see on our Facebook page. If you haven't joined our Facebook group, be sure to do that as well. Just search The Mansion Murders Fox 5 on Facebook and we'll add you to the group. I'm Sarah Frazier, host and producer. We'll see you next time.